Hello, my name is Vance Need, and welcome to another episode of The PS Plus, a Living Faith Bible Institute podcast that serves as a companion to another called The Postscript. Now, on that podcast, pastor and host Brandon Briscoe each week will speak with other pastors and professors from the Living Faith Bible Institute on a wide array of topics. Here on this podcast of PS Plus, we'll take a look at some of those topics that are being discussed and we'll dive in just a bit deeper. Now, here on the PS Plus, we've been in the middle of a series that's been taking a look at the King James Bible, and we're going to continue that series today. So, let's do this thing. So we'll take just a few moments to review where we've been at in our KJV series, and we've essentially contrasted a faith-based view with a critical view of Scripture. And we've defined those two. A faith-based view is one that believes that God has providentially preserved His Word. It's an act that He performs Himself and does not need anyone or anybody to make sure that His Word is perfectly preserved throughout all time for all generations. The opposite end of the spectrum would be a critical view, which says that God inspired his word perfect in the original writings, in the original languages, but it's up to humans to get back to what God originally spoke to those authors. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at translation philosophy, or what are the underlying ideologies that are responsible for the different translations that we have. Now, just for a bit of context, this isn't exclusively about the KJV necessarily, but it does give us insight into why some of the modern versions read the way in which they do. And that's one thing to be aware of as far as why there are so many translations out there. Some of that is due to translation philosophy, which we'll talk about today. And some of that is due to the underlying texts or manuscripts from which we are translating and we'll look at that at another time. But before we get too deep into the translation philosophy rabbit hole, it'd be helpful to define just a couple of terms, and that's because we're going to refer to them quite a bit. Now, some of this is going to be, you know, kind of pedestrian, so forgive me. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a basic dude. So the first is translation, which is simply the rendering of words from one language into another. Next is form, which is the letters, syllables, words, phrases, and sentence structures of a particular language. Next, we have meaning, or the information and ideas that a person intends for another person to hear and understand. Next, we have source, the original language from which you are translating. And lastly, we have receptor, or the new language to which you are translating. Now, as it relates to translation philosophy, there are two primarily that we are going to take a look at. The first is called formal equivalence, and the second is called dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence is the process of translation in which both the words and forms are rendered as closely as possible from Hebrew or Greek into English. Hebrew or Greek because those are the languages from which the Bible is translated. Now, this is also known as a word-for-word translation, and, and as that name implies, the goal of this type of translation is to find an equivalent word in the receptor language that is present in the source language. 
the translator as much as is possible is removed from the process of determining meaning as their primary concern is fidelity to the source language's form. Now, there are more than a few Bible translations that use this particular process of of formal equivalence. The King James Bible is one, but another example would be the English Standard Version, the ESV, or the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. Now, Dynamic equivalence is a little bit different. This is a process of translating that attempts to interpret and convey the intent of the message and thoughts of a source text rather than the literal words. And it's for this reason that this is also known as a thought-for-thought translation. And this type of translation involves taking each thought from the original text and rendering it into a thought in the receptor language that conveys the same meaning but may not use the exact form or structure of the original. Now, there are lots of Bible translations that use this method. Some examples would be the New International Version and the New Living Translation. And it's at this point that I really want to drill down on thought-for-thought translations, on dynamic equivalent translations, because this is a relatively new ideology as far as Bible translation goes, and it's attributed primarily to a man named Eugene Nida. Now, Nida lived from 1914 to 2011 and is the man most responsible for the formation and popularization of dynamic equivalents. Nida was an ordained minister, a cultural anthropologist, and he had a PhD in linguistics. So, bro was like mad smart. He's a very well-learned man, and he does have a goal in mind for why he develops dynamic equivalence, and that's because he is also a missionary. Nida had a heart for reaching unreached people groups, and he was involved in translating scripture into more than 200 languages. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's no Netflix time for Eugene Nida. He is, he is all about Bible translation. And in an excerpt from Boone Aldridge's book, For the Gospel's Sake, The Rise of the Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Summer Institute of Linguistics, Aldridge provides us with a better understanding of the impact of Nida's work, where he says, quote, His work also had significant consequences for evangelicism in the English-speaking world since dynamic equivalents to varying degrees also formed the theoretical basis for most modern vernacular English translations. So with the rest of our time today, we're going to take a quick look, a quick overview of the principles of dynamic equivalence to better understand what it is that Eugene Nida's system did. Now, this won't be an exhaustive list, but it best represents kind of the high-level overview of what it is that dynamic equivalence is about. Now, the first rule that we'll take a look at is contextual consistency over verbal consistency. What this means is that translating a word in the source language using a corresponding word in the receptor language may not be the clearest rendering of the passage because semantic areas of corresponding words in different languages are not necessarily identical. Now, a dumbed-down version, a van version of that would be a focus on meaning rather than form. Again, meaning being the intent that you are trying to convey, 
the ideas that you're trying to convey, whereas form is the actual letters, words, sentence structure. So essentially what we're saying is, is that we're focusing on, you know, what's, what's the point? What are we trying to say? And that might be a better way to communicate than the actual individual structures that make up said language. Number two, dynamic equivalence over formal correspondence. The response of the receptor should be as close as possible to the response of the original receptors. This is key to understand here. The audience hearing or reading scripture in today's cultural context should understand the content in an identical way in which the original hearers or readers did. Another way of saying this is that we are focusing on the audience, who we are translating for, and making sure that they hear it in a way that is equivalent to how the original hearers or original readers did. So we're focusing on the audience, not necessarily the author. Third is oral form over written form. How the translation is heard takes precedence over how the translation is written. And this is because according to Nida, the Bible is often used liturgically and for oral instruction around the world as literacy isn't always prevalent. So again, a van version of this is focused on how the translation sounds rather than how it reads. What Nida is trying to do here is he's trying to focus on meaning. What is the point? What are the big ideas of what's being conveyed? He's trying to focus on the audience and making sure that it's not just that we're communicating big ideas, but that the audience is receiving those ideas and that we're going to prioritize how it, how it sounds or how it reads because not everybody can read. Nida had a set of guiding principles in order to make sure that we're getting a translation that is best understood by those whom the translation is for, the audience of that translation. But he also wanted to make sure that that translation was successful. So Nida would advocate the employment of market research in order to judge whether a translation was successful or not. So I realize that this term market research may be newer, so let me give you an example of it in action. A few years ago, there was a movie that came out called I Am Legend, starring one Will Smith. And I remember watching this movie in theaters. It's kind of a zombie vampire-ish movie. It's not it's not gory. It's pretty action-packed, lots of jumps and thrills. But I'm watching this movie in the theater and the god man, okay, guys, we're here. I mean, I thought that I could like, you know, bring a little example, but I realized I have to summarize this entire movie. So, okay, let me rewind. Spoiler alert. I'm going to spoil I am legend for you, but we're here now. So, welcome to my TED Talk. So basically in this movie, Will Smith is responsible for creating some type of like zombie virus thing and it's gone out of hand and like the whole world is dead, but like him and his dog. And he is abducting these like zombie vampire virus people in order to try and find a cure in hopes that he can disseminate said cure to anyone that may still be living. Throughout the course of the film, he's abducting zombie vampire people, and they're essentially all dying. They're not responding to this cure that he's developed. But one zombie vampire female does, and he's super jazzed about it. And then a whole bunch of stuff happens, and eventually the whole horde of zombies makes it back to his laboratory where he has been you know, trying to develop this cure. And what's interesting is that throughout the course of the movie, 
you start to get an idea that maybe these zombie vampire people are intelligent because they're doing things that aren't just pure animalistic behavior. They're like setting traps and they've got like some strategy involved. But at the end of the film, like it doesn't actually deliver on that particular premise. Like I think Will Smith like blows himself up to sacrifice some other, you know, random bros that he met along the way. And that's it. And I remember walking out of the theater going, it seems like the movie had a different ending than the rest of the movie was setting up. Well, guess what, guys? When the original ending for I Am Legend was screened for test audiences, the test audiences didn't like it. So you know what they did? Well, they reshot the end of the movie. That's market research. The audience determined that they didn't like the product, so they changed the product so the audience would like it. Now, some of you may be asking, what does that have to do with Bible translation? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Tell him what he's won. What does that have to do with Bible translation? And yet, this is what Eugene Nida was advocating for, the employment of market research as it relates to Bible translation. And here's a quote from Nida himself. Regardless of how theoretically good a product might be or how seemingly well it is displayed, if people do not respond favorably to it, then it is not going to be accepted. Now, I find that this idea is untenable to focus on the audience rather than what the author is trying to communicate. I've got a little bit of beef with this, guys, and I'm going to tell you all about it next time. So as always, guys, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the PS Plus. If you're curious about the Living Faith Bible Institute, I'd encourage you to go to lfbi.org where you can find all about our biblical instruction on equipping believers and how to rightly divide the word of truth. If you're curious about the ending to I Am Legend that was rejected, well, man, go Google that because you'll find it on the Internet. Also, it's like been a hot minute since I've seen I Am Legend, so I don't th I don't think there's anything bad in the movie. I think it might have some language, but you know, it's probably fine. Thanks so much again for your time, and I hope to talk to you next time as well. Take care.